The hardest worker on Sundays these days is the announcer, so good job. A lot of announcements. Okay, um, before we get into the message, I actually have one more announcement, a very special announcement, which is earlier this year, if you were here, you would remember that we nominated our first elders and we were very excited. Uh, we had an opportunity to call up Daniel and Sam to the front and they came up, uh, we had a dedication service, and they basically began serving as our elders in our church. And our vision all along is that we would be an elder-led church and deacon-served church. But we are still in the process of appointing more elders, and so our goal is to eventually have probably three, if not four elders at our church serving uh, full-time, full-time meaning they're serving uh, in that capacity only. But I wanted to announce today that we're going to be having our next round of nominations for elders, so we're very excited um, to open this up for the members of our church. So I realize not everybody here is a member, that's okay. Maybe it's more incentive for you to go to a membership class, find out more, become a member. But if you are a member, then we will be taking nominations for our potential next round of elders. And so um, before I get into what the rules are, I'm going to be reading from our bylaws. Yes, we have bylaws. <laughs> uh, so you'll be hearing a little bit of that for the first time. But let me read from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But these are the qualifications that we are looking for as we take nominations for elders. Paul said, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is the same word as elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So those words are very important. As you guys are praying about and thinking about who can I nominate? When I say nominate, I'm literally talking about you submitting a name or maybe two names of any brother in the church that you would like to see serve as an elder, these are the qualifications you should be thinking about in your mind. So let me just read a little bit from our bylaws. It just kind of clarifies a little bit more. But our bylaws, it says, they, meaning elders, shall be qualified to perform the duties of elders. They should desire to serve as elders, be in agreement with the statement of faith and these bylaws, and be in agreement with the purpose of the promised church. And by the way, if you're a member and if you want to look through our bylaws, you can just request it. We'll just send it out. We should maybe even post it on our website. I've thought about doing that. It's not a secret. But elders should be in agreement with the statement of faith, the bylaws, and the purpose of the promised church. Elders, other than the lead pastor, shall have been active members of the promised church for at least two years prior to being voted in as elders. So that means please don't nominate somebody who you just met like a week ago and they started coming out. I mean, I'm sure he's a great brother, but please, we are looking for people who have been active members for at least two years. So that is another qualification. And that's pretty much it, in addition to what I read in scripture. 
And so basically this is what the process is going to look like. Just give me another minute and we'll be done. But we're going to be sending out an email to all the members. If you're a member, you'll get it. And then through that email, you'll have a link where you can submit names. Uh, you can submit at the most two nominations. And all these nominations are going to be confidential. You're not going to be sharing it with like the whole church or anything like that. Just anonymous, confidential nominations. We won't even know who submitted them. And then once we have all the nominations, you'll have two weeks to do that. The Board of Elders, we're going to evaluate all these nominees. And then out of those nominees, we'll select a slate of potential elders. And we'll evaluate even further. And then we will, after prayer, invite them to consider joining a one-year process of training and meeting with me. And so that's what I did with Sam and Daniel, but we met for a full year together, once a month, in order to go through material, training, to just kind of evaluate, and then finally they were nominated and they got voted in. So we'll do that with the new nominees. And then after that full year is over, we'll evaluate again. Did they do well, right? Or are there some big issues? And if they did well, then we will present them to the members as people we're going to vote on. And that'll happen two weeks before our members meeting. Our members meeting is every February, uh, every year in February. So, so you'll get those names. And then on the first weekend of February, or I believe the second, we're going to have our vote at the members meeting. We'll vote. And if they get two-thirds of the vote, they will be officially ushered in. They're going to start serving as elders the very beginning of the following month in March. Okay, is that crystal clear? <laughs> is that confusing? You can ask me. You can talk to me. But that's pretty much it. And that's how we're going to get our next round of elders. And once somebody becomes an elder, they will be uh, serving as an elder for three years. Afterwards, they can serve another three years without a vote, just confirmation by the elder board. And then if they want to serve longer than that, they have to be, be voted in again. So that's pretty much it. That is our process here. Um, and one more thing, if you haven't caught up to this point, we are only asking, we believe the Bible teaches, that only brothers uh, be nominated as elders. So please prayerfully consider any brothers who can serve as elders. So that is what we are excited about. That is what we are hoping to move forward in in this next season. So again, if you have any questions, please ask me, uh, talk to me after service, or talk to Sam and Daniel. They know this as well. Okay? Okay, praise God. Let me just say a prayer, and then we'll get started with our message today. Father God, we give you all the glory. We thank you so much, Lord, that you are building your church, and we are very excited for this next round of elders to be nominated to serve as overseers and shepherds of this church. Lord, this is too big of a task for just me alone, or even just Sam and Daniel and I alone. But Lord God, we desire more helpers and co-laborers. And we're not the only ones serving this church. We have several leaders serving in many capacities. But these are key roles, Lord. These are strategic roles. So Lord God, I pray and ask that you would please, Father God, guide as our church begins to nominate different brothers to this elder role. I pray that you would guide, that you would really lead, and that you would, Father God, be with us as well, me, Sam, and Daniel, as we begin to pray about who we want to enter into this process of training and equipping and evaluating for a whole year. So Lord God, through all of that, be with us. We give you all the glory. We know, Father, 
you will bring those whom you have called, those that this church needs. We thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, praise the Lord. Thank you guys so much. Okay, open up your Bibles to, let's see here. Lost my place. Okay, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. And we're going to get right into the word of God. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. Okay, if you're joining us in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it at the screen, on your screen at home. Okay, this is God's word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should be that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that has then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much, Lord, for your holy word. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you desire to speak to us today as you do every Sunday. You desire to meet with us through the pages of your scripture, through the still small voice of your spirit. Father God, please speak to us. Please open up our hearts to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much for everyone that is here today. Be with all of us, Lord God. May you encourage us. May you challenge us. May you build us up and be with those who are online as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. We are finally at the very last chapter of Second Peter. And it's been a very fascinating journey so far, going through this entire letter with you guys, uh, chapter by chapter. And in chapter one, we looked at the foundation of our faith. That's how Peter began this entire letter. And that foundation is the gospel and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you already have this foundation. It's not something you need to go find or build. It's been given to you by grace as a gift. And upon that foundation of grace, now Peter told us, if you remember, every believer should diligently build a life of godliness on top of that. So have we received this foundation as a gift? Yes. But after receiving it, build, Peter said, build diligently a life of godliness. So if you remember, he talked about diligently add to your faith virtue, and then add to your virtue knowledge, and then add to your knowledge self-control, and then so on and so on. So there's kind of a systematic step-by-step -step building that you must do 
And yet, so many believers, after receiving God's grace through faith in the gospel, they do what? Well, we should know, because I'm sure we've all done this. We just kick back in faith. Okay, it's grace, right? It's all grace. It's a gift. I'm going to go to heaven one day. I'm just going to do my thing until then. So they just kick back in faith, and they think to themselves, isn't it all grace? And then they choose a life of least resistance, and Peter in chapter 1 warned against that. He said, believers who live like that will not stand and endure to the very end. If you've ever wondered, why do my Christian friends back in high school, how come they like left the church and they don't follow God anymore? Well, it's probably because they kicked back in faith. They thought it was all grace. And if one day, God forbid, you leave the faith or leave the church, it's the same reason. You just kick back in faith rather than build diligently. And so Peter warned us, believers who live like that, taking the grace of God for granted, will not stand. You will not endure and ultimately, that proves that you are never in the faith to begin with. You are never truly saved. So all of that and more was in chapter 1. And then we moved to chapter 2, and we looked at the characteristics of false teachers and false teachings in the last days. And we looked at the judgment that will come upon them. And this is the meat of the letter. Okay, this is the reason why Peter wrote the letter and as we worked through chapter 2, we looked at topics that, I'll be honest, we've never looked at before in this church, or at least haven't looked at very much. So this was a really amazing, incredible chapter. But we looked at things like neo-paganism, cultural Marxism, antinomianism, the abuse of spiritual authority, the secret and seductive ways of false teachers. We looked at false converts, false conversions. So all of that was in chapter 2 and more, and these are incredibly pressing topics today in the days that we're living in. So this is amazing. But like I said, it's been an incredible journey going through this book. So basically in a nutshell, that's everything we've been looking at for the last, like, I think almost two and a half months, close to three months. And now we're finally in chapter 3. So now we're in the last home stretch, and we're going to be wrapping this up in a few weeks. And 2 Peter chapter 3 finally drills down into the actual false teaching that Peter was dealing with in this letter. This is what he heard about. Because Peter was a shepherd overseeing many churches, and he heard that there was a false teaching spreading, and this is what it was. He's going to talk about it now in chapter 3. And so what was this false teaching? Here it is. It denied Jesus' second coming. And that's all we know. Peter doesn't elaborate. He doesn't give us details. He doesn't even tell us exactly who it was that was spreading this. But some false teachers in the first century got into these churches and they denied Jesus' second coming. And again, I think Peter leaves things vague in this letter, inspired by the Spirit, so that it would be applicable to every generation. This is exactly applicable to us today. But this false teaching denied Jesus' second coming. So if you look in verse 4, it says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So in other words, these false teachers came into the churches and started talking to people. Maybe they even had a platform. They started sharing this stuff in community groups. But they started saying, you know, you keep saying, Peter, Jesus is coming back. So where is he? 
the world keeps going the way it's always gone. Yesterday I went to bed, I woke up this morning, the sun came up, you know, life was going on. Next day I go to bed, I wake up, probably the same thing, right? The next day, same thing. Next, everything's the same. I don't think he's coming back. So where is his coming? So the false teachers questioned Jesus' second coming. But it was more than just questioning, but it was a wholesale rejection of Jesus' second coming. And I believe they were teaching this rejection of the second coming to all the believers in those churches. And so this was a very urgent matter. This is why Peter had to write this letter. And to some of you guys sitting here today, in Riverside in 2023, you might be thinking, okay, that's a random false teaching. What does that have to do with me? And it might seem like this totally irrelevant issue to our lives today. And yet, please hear this. This is the most rejected prophecy today. The most rejected prophecy today. And there is a particular hatred that Satan has for this prophecy. And you see it. His hatred for this prophecy is so intense, it is being attacked everywhere, left and right, throughout the world today. In fact, even last night, I, I wasn't going to even share this, not in my notes, but last night I was doing some research on the second coming and I came up upon this cult that began in South Korea and now is spreading everywhere and is getting so big that the popular YouTuber Mike Winger, you guys might have seen him, he's a Christian YouTuber, he even had to make a series of videos on this cult. But this cult that started in South Korea basically claims that this Korean pastor who already passed away but he is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has already returned. And in fact, he is God. And the woman that he left his wife to marry, that he had an affair with, this woman, his second wife, is now considered Mother God. And I believe she's still alive. She's Mother God, and he's Jesus Christ. And there are thousands and thousands of people following this cult, especially young people on the college campus. So... Satan has a particular hatred against his prophecy of the true Jesus coming back at his true appointed time. And so we live in a time when there are incredible accusations against the second coming of Christ. Incredible twistings of it, like I just mentioned. And incredible widespread denials of it. And Jesus himself said this will be one of the significant marks of the last days. In Matthew 24, he said in Matthew 24, 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And that is so true. You know, last night, going back to that story, I, I showed it to my mother-in-law and, and because she knows Korean Christianity a lot better than I do. And I'm like, mom, mom, do you, do you know about this? And then she's like, wait a minute, is it, is it the cult in this one place? I'm like, no. Wait, is it the cult in this other place? I'm like, no. She's like, there's so many of them. And I was like, oh, there's more than one? She's like, there's so many. There's all kinds of people saying they're Jesus Christ in Korea. I'm like, what's wrong with Korea? But it's like, dude, this is crazy. I thought I, I, I saw something incredible. And she's like, ah, I've seen this before. She's like, which one, right? But they are everywhere. And so we are living in a time when this is fulfilled. So that is a twisting of Jesus' second coming. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware. So there, 
that is talking about the denial and rejection of Jesus' coming. So whether you twist it, completely pervert it for your own gain, or you completely come against it, rejecting it, or you just ignore it, all of it is a form of rejection. So this rejection of Jesus' second coming will mark the last days. And brothers and sisters, this rejection that was in Peter's day is everywhere today. It is everywhere today. And this is what Peter addressed in chapter 3. So Peter, in chapter 3, began to describe this accusation in verses 3 to 4. And then Peter offered answers to those accusations in verse 2 and then 5 through 9. And then he gave a final assurance of what's coming in verse 10. So that's basically the entire passage we read. So there's the accusation, the answers, and the assurance. And today we're only going to be looking at the accusation. And then hopefully we'll look at the rest next week or maybe in two weeks. But the accusation and then the answers and then finally the assurance. So today we'll look at the accusation. So 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, if you look there, Peter just lays out the accusation clearly. It says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days while scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter starts there by saying, knowing this, first of all. When he says first, he's not talking about order, he's talking about priority. So he's saying, you need to know this as your highest priority. So as he wrote this letter, it's surprising he said that, because he said a lot of important things before, earlier in the letter. But for some reason, he said, okay, I want you to know this most of all. Know what? That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Now that's a funny sounding phrase, it's repetitive, but it stresses a key characteristic of the last days. Which is what? Scoffing and scoffers. So these scoffers are going to come scoffing. In other words, they're going to be mocking. So mockers will come in the last days mocking. And what will they be mocking? Okay, what are they going to be making fun of? Jesus' second coming. So this is what Peter said. You need to know this as your high priority. Maybe not highest, but as a very high priority. Understand this. In the last days, mockers or scoffers are going to come making fun of and mocking Jesus' second coming. And by the way, right there when he said the last days, that is the entire length of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Between the inauguration of God's kingdom and the consummation of God's kingdom. Between the birth of the church and the rapture of the church. Okay, all of that is the last days. The last days is the age of the Holy Spirit being poured out. It's the final age in human history as we know it. It's the age that we're living in. Okay, that's the last days. And Peter said, in the last days, there will be scoffers and mockers everywhere. And they're going to be mocking this fairy tale that Christians are clinging on to. That this Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago, went around teaching, got himself killed, and then supposedly he came back to life, went up to heaven, and then one day he's going to come back to this earth personally, bodily, invisibly. And when he comes, he's going to rescue believers and judge the unbelievers. So that's basically what they're going to be making fun of. And people everywhere today, they are. They have rejected that wholesale. They mock it. 
And this is no small prophecy, brothers and sisters, that they're rejecting. Because in the Bible, Jesus' second coming is the same event as the day of the Lord. Okay, both of them are mentioned all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And yet, the world mocks it and ignores it. So, the most repeated prophecy in the Bible is also the most rejected prophecy today. Okay, that's the point Peter's trying to make. This is the most significant prophecy that will happen in the future. The Bible talks about it endlessly. And that is the thing that the enemy is attacking and people are rejecting the most today. And so I actually saw this, but I went to a Reddit blog site where they talk about these type of things. And this one Reddit post actually posted this question, what is your opinion on the second coming of Jesus? And that Redditor clarified, I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist, so you can say whatever you want. And these are some of the answers, some of the replies. And 99% of them, by the way, mocked the second coming. So here are a few of them, at least the ones I can share publicly. There was a lot of splitters and cussing. But it said, the world's been ending, quote unquote, since ancient Sumerian times. Fun fact, this stuff is every year for some people. Another person, is a hive mind apocalypse suicide fetish. Another person, second coming, I'm still waiting for the first one, LOL. Another one, fictional character did not return in the lifetime of those present and is not coming back now because he remains fictional. You know, that one makes me smile because nearly every historian, even the most radical, skeptical historians, pretty much say Jesus is the most attested to historical figure, but whatever, right? He's fictional to this person. But anyway, this is the view out there of the average person on the internet. But even respected figures, but I remember Carl Sagan, he was a famous astronomer, but he had similar views. But when he was asked about religion, and in particular, the second coming of Christ, he basically said the second coming is in the same category as children's fables. And so even famous, respected personalities. But then the most surprising of all is even Christian theologians who deny Jesus' coming talk about it outright. They even write books or talk about it in their commentaries. But William Neal, he's a Bible scholar who wrote a commentary on Thessalonians, but this is what he said. He said the parousia, which is a theological name for the second coming, is like creation, in a real sense, timeless, not a historical event, but the underlying purpose of history and the summing up of all things in Christ. So did you guys catch that? The second coming, according to this Christian theologian, oh, it's not historical. It's kind of more symbolic, right? It's kind of like creation, which by the way, isn't historical either. All of this is just symbolic, just talking about some purpose to history. There's some end goal. So these are just a few examples of direct rejections of Jesus' second coming. So everything Peter said is true. But the vast majority of people, they don't talk about this stuff, right? They're not online writing about all these things. They don't write books rejecting this teaching. But instead, what do the vast majority of people do? They just ignore it. They come to church, they'll hit, hear sermons like this one, and they go, oh, whatever. And then they go on living their lives. As if this is something to not even consider. And so whether you outright reject it and talk about it, whether you have arguments against it, or you just simply hear it and ignore it, there is a wholesale rejection of the greatest prophecy in Scripture. This is by far the greatest prophecy rejected today. But why? 
Okay, why is this prophecy so rejected and so ignored? Okay, why did the false teachers in Peter's day accuse believers of, be of believing something false, accuse Peter of teaching something not true? Well, there are a few reasons. First, it's because of the reality. It's reality. The reality of the second coming. So if you look at 2 Peter 3.10, he said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So in, those ver in that verse right there, it talks about how there is this grim, dramatic, sudden, apocalyptic reality to the second coming of Jesus. Remember earlier I said the second coming and the Lord, day of the Lord, they're the same event. They're both going to be cataclysmic and sudden, and it's going to bring everything to an end. And people reject it. They reject the simple thought that there is an actual end to human history. That life as we know it will not go on indefinitely. They just reject that in their hearts. There's something about the way God created us. We have been created with eternity in our hearts, it says, in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, I believe. And because of that, when they hear about a sudden end to the life that we live right now, we just reject that. Okay, how can that be? And yet this is a reality that is clearly taught in scripture and that is clearly rejected all throughout the world. There's something that is absolute. Okay, there's something that is sudden about this end that people cannot accept. And so something that absolute, when people who are living in this kind of relativistic world and they're living a relativistic life, it just sounds absurd. It sounds crazy. It's kind of like being told on vacation, you're on this vacation, and you're just kind of living your life, enjoying this time, and then suddenly someone comes up to you and says, you know, at the end of your vacation, there's a final exam. And this final exam is going to be worth $10,000. If you don't pass it, you're going to have to pay this fine. And you're like, What? You're going to be asked questions about what restaurants you went to and the things that are on the menu. You're going to be quizzed on the right? There's going to be some historical quiz on all these different sites. And you're thinking, no way. I'm on vacation. I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm just going to go to the restaurants I want to go to. I'm just going to eat the food I want to eat. Okay, I'm just going to go visit the sites I want to visit. What do you mean there's an exam? So somebody on vacation, I mean, it's just completely relative, right? It's my vacation, it's my time, I do what I want. What in the world are you talking about something absolute coming at the end of that? And so that's how people hear the second coming of Christ today. What are you talking about? I'm just living my life. I'm gonna do the best I can, I'm gonna work hard, try to make money, support a family if I have a family, and maybe make a positive impact in the world. What are you talking about this day of the Lord? A sudden cataclysmic end. It's a complete rejection. And so the same attitude of a person on vacation being told hey, there's a final exam with high stakes at the end of your vacation, that is the same attitude that people today have when they think about their own lives that is by and large relativistic, being told that there's something absolute that's coming. It's absurd. It's repugnant. Bible commentator Michael Green, he said it like this. Men and women who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous. So it's just insane. What are you talking about? I'm just living my life. 
Why would there be some cataclysmic end coming? So that's the first reason why the teachers in Peter's day and people today just completely reject it. It's the reality, the sudden reality of this day that's coming. Here's another reason they reject it. It's unpredictability. It's unpredictability. But people scoff at the thought of something that major is coming, but it's unknown. Okay, it's vague. So when exactly is this? Well, we're not sure, but it is coming. And when people hear that, they automatically have this reaction. What are you talking about? And they dismiss it. Well, then it can't be true. But Jesus clearly said that there will be a season with clear signs, specific signs that you can know that will show you around when this day is coming, but you will not know the day or the hour. So it is vague, although you can kind of know when it's approaching. And so listen to Jesus. He said in Mark 13, 28, from the fig tree, learn his lesson. As soon as his branch becomes tender and puts out his leaves, you know that summer is near. That's true. In my house, when you sit at the kitchen table, you see a big tree outside the window. And right around when summer came, everything started to bloom. So we kind of knew, oh yeah, summer's here. We also knew because our AC's broken, it was super hot. But the tree also told us, summer's here, it's here. So Jesus is saying, just like when a tree begins to bloom, summer is coming, when these signs that he's talking about in that chapter, when they begin to happen, you know my coming is drawing near. So you kind of know around when. Although, and then he said in verse 29, Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 32, although concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So do you see that tension? Jesus is saying, around the time I'm going to be coming, you will know. As surely as when the tree blooms, you know summer is here, you're going to know. But the exact time, you won't know. And that was by design. God designed it that way. You know, we actually had a CG Bible study on this not long ago, and we actually had a fun time talking about it with the, the kids. The kids always join us for a portion of the Bible study. But I remember during that Bible study, I asked the kids, what would you do, kids, if your mom told you that I'm going to step out for a little while, but I want you to finish all your homework, and I want it to be done by the time I come home, and then she leaves, and then she's gone for a long time, and you don't know when she's going to come back, what would you do? And the kids were very honest. They're like, I would play. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, you're very, very honest. Like, I'm not going to do my homework. I'm just going to play. Like, I don't know when mom's coming back. It's been a long time. And then I asked the kids, well, what would you do to change it if you knew exactly when she was coming back? She told you the hour and the minute she's going to come back because she had to be back by this time. Okay, what would you do, kids? And then they were honest again. They, would, they said, I would play <laughs> until the last minutes, and then I would do my homework. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are so honest. I'm like, that's exactly right. That's what I would do. <laughs> that's exactly what I would do. I would like look at all the time I have, and then I would just play for like 90% of it, and then I would just measure it so that I would just get my homework done before my mom got home. And so this is precisely what God is avoiding. He designed his coming in such a way where it would avoid this. He told us the season around the time that he is coming. And those times are approaching, brothers and sisters. One day I hope to do a thorough teaching on the end times in our church. I've been studying it a lot these days. But we can know around what time. It's actually not true that Jesus is coming back right now. You know some pastors do that. Jesus can come back right now. 
tonight, right now. That's not true. He doesn't just come back suddenly with no signs. There are many, many signs that need to be fulfilled before his coming. But we are drawing near to that. So you can know around what time, but you will not know the hour. And so between that tension, you're going to have to be watchful. You're going to constantly have to be aware, okay, are the signs approaching? Are there more of them? Is that time drawing near? But I don't know exactly when, so I need to continue to be watchful. I need to continue to be faithful and keep doing what God has called me to do in my life, whether it's be a husband, a wife, be faithful in school, work hard, advance in your career so you can glorify God and serve him through that. Whatever it may be, serve at church, preach the word, you need to be faithful as you're watchful. So God designed it that way. And people hate that. People hate that, brothers and sisters. I'm talking about especially in the world, but including in the church. They hate it as much as a teacher announcing on the first day of class that there are going to be several pop quizzes all throughout the semester. They go, what? They hate that. That vagueness kills them. What do you mean there are going to be several pop quizzes? When are they? Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. They're not pop quizzes, if I tell you. They're meant to catch you off guard. Why? So that you'll always be prepared. And that is onerous, right? People hate that. It's a burden. And because of that, here's another reason people reject the second coming of Christ. What are you talking about? It's vague. Oh, you'll know the season, but not the, what are you talking about? And so for many, especially non-Christians, they go, this is more evidence that it's not even real. And so they reject it. When's he coming? He's not coming. What are you talking about? Maybe a thousand years, right? And so that's the second reason. And here's one more. A third reason why people reject Jesus' second coming is finality. It's finality. In 1 Thessalonians, to now look at Paul, Peter actually references Paul in chapter 3. But when you look at Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, and then verse 6, Paul says, Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And so all these pictures, these analogies, they're very helpful. But here, Peter uses a different analogy. It's like a woman who's very, very pregnant, and she knows the baby's coming. She knows better than anyone, right? The baby's coming. We recently had a few babies here at our church. Praise God, Luke and Angela had just had their baby. Congratulate them. But baby is coming, I know, right? It's coming, but exactly when, I don't, right? The hour, I don't know the hour. But then Paul says, but then suddenly the water breaks and you're just watching TV, right? Wheel of Fortune. Oh my gosh! And then you have to get rushed to the hospital. Why? Because the water broke. The labor contractions began. And so now the baby is really coming. The baby has always been coming, but now he's really coming, Paul says. And here's the point. In that moment, you can't escape it. Right? It's a powerful analogy. So the pregnant woman whose water just broke, she's not going to be like, hold on, I want to finish this episode of Wheel of Fortune. Just wait, right? Go back in, baby. There's no stopping it. The baby's coming. In the same way, when Jesus' second coming begins to come, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. There's no, hey, I'm about to get married, Jesus. Can you just wait? There's no waiting. Jesus is coming. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us stay awake and be sober. 
And then he goes on and many other passages describe in vivid detail that when Jesus comes back, it will be the worst day of the unbeliever's life. And it will be the best day of the believer's life. But for the unbeliever who has rejected Christ their whole lives, sudden destruction will come upon them. In that single moment, they will be judged for their sins and for all eternity. But then for the believer, the greatest blessing that they have been yearning for comes. They're going to immediately, in the twinkle of an eye, receive their glorified bodies. If you're ill, if you're handicapped, if you're physically suffering, suddenly it's all gone. And now you see Jesus face to face in your glorified bodies. And then there's many more things that happen. It's not like Jesus comes back and everything's over. There's many more things. Jesus' second coming is actually a series of events. It's one big of event with a series of events. But it's gonna come suddenly. And so the, in the economy of God's grace, this is something utterly unique, brothers and sisters, meaning the finality of it. Because until the day of the Lord comes, all throughout scripture, God is always what? The God of second chances. There's always another day, amen? Jesus said every morning his mercies are new. So if you sinned yesterday, today is a new day. You can come fresh to God and be forgiven and walk with him again. Every day is a new day. There are new mercies every morning. And so God is a God of second chances. That is emphasized all throughout scripture. And so his invitation goes out every single day, even today, except for one day. That is the last day, his final day. On that day, there is no more second chance. It's over. It's over, brothers and sisters. And so when that sudden, unexpected day comes, the God of second chances will no longer offer those second chances. His judgment and his final blessings will come and everything will be laid bare. All the sins of the world will be exposed and we'll look at that later in chapter three. And brothers and sisters, this is utterly repugnant to everyone. Okay, this is unacceptable. People just can't wrap their minds around that. Okay, they don't want to wrap their minds around it. They don't want to accept it. And Peter makes it so clear earlier in the letter that it's the immorality of the false teachers that made them reject Jesus' second coming. So why, why can't people accept this? Why can't they accept this clear teaching that's been repeated all throughout the Bible? Well, it's because they live in sin. Okay, they're living lives that are unprepared to meet the Lord. And they know it deep in their hearts. Okay, every non-believer even know, knows, you know, I'm probably not living the best life that I should be for God, if there is a God. Or even if there's, if there's just some vague standard that they can't even explain fully, I'm probably not measuring up to that. And the thought of a day coming when all of that suddenly ends and you're going to be held account, they can't accept that. And this is true even for Christians. And so here's a sober question that we should ask ourselves. If you're not longing to see Jesus Christ today, why not? How come? If you didn't wake up this morning, and you know, we don't do this every day, right? I don't do it every day. But if you're not thinking, gosh, it'd be great if Jesus came back today, right now. And if that is not the longing in your heart, then this is a very, very big question. Why not? Okay, what is it about Jesus coming that you actually kind of want to postpone? What is it that your heart is longing for more than to see the face of your Savior and to receive your glorified body and to be with him for all eternity? 
Okay, what is it about all that that you're like, uh, not now, not now? And I know you've heard many Christians, so have I, but how many times have you heard a young Christian or maybe a not-so-young Christian say, Jesus, I don't want you to come back. Eventually, yeah, but not right now because I need to get married, right? I need to get experienced of marriage. I need to advance in my career. You know, I want to go visit Europe. I want to go experience my life. I want to go do things, Jesus. And so don't come back yet. And so they all sense there's a finality to his coming. And they don't like that. And so again, I'm going to pose it to you guys, but why? Okay, well, why is that finality of his second coming such a burden? You don't want that right now. Well, I think that it says a lot. But I believe the second coming of Jesus is kind of like an x-ray to our soul. There's something about that day that we just kind of push off. Almost like the same thing as the day of our death. We don't think about it. I don't want to think about my death. Even though the Bible says, think about it, prepare for it. No, I don't want to think about it. Same thing. Jesus' second coming, I don't want to think about it. And the reason is because it's an x-ray to our soul. It exposes the things that are there. The longings that are misplaced. The things that we do want more than God. The sins that are in our lives that we know we've, we haven't dealt with. Yeah, I'm not ready. I don't want that right now. And so, brothers and sisters, this false teaching that was all throughout the churches that Peter oversaw, it's in the churches today. People, whether you outright reject Jesus' second coming or just in your heart, we reject it. We don't want it. And yet, this desire to postpone is a misguided desire because what believers will receive on the day Jesus returns, the glorification of their bodies, freedom from sin, being with their Lord forever, what they're going to receive will obliterate any joy they're longing for right now. It'll just obliterate it. But I'm not ready for that. I don't want that, right? Again, why? So regardless, people cannot accept how his coming will be sudden and irreversible. They just cannot accept in their minds how final it'll be. So they postpone. They push it aside. So what do people do? They accuse the Bible of lying. They reject it as a myth. Okay, this is why we see this rejection. Okay, this is why Peter had to deal with it in his churches. Okay, the human soul is just a burden. So people, they say, there is no second coming of Jesus. And they say, you know what? All these things that the Bible talks about, I'm not ready for it. I'm going to just do my own thing right now. You know, I remember uh, many years ago, I was a college pastor. And I remember a student clearly making this choice. But he came and visited our campus ministry. And I kind of got to know him a little bit. He called himself a Christian. But he wasn't really going to church yet. He wasn't really, like, going anywhere. And so I encouraged him, hey, uh, come out and we'll start meeting. And once you get back with God and get devoted to him. And we met many times. And as we met, it became very clear. He was really struggling with his career and trying to make money. Even while he was a student, he was working part-time jobs and trying to make all this money. And he basically told me, he's like, you know, Roy, uh, thanks for meeting and doing all these like talks with me, but I've decided I don't have time right now for God in the church, maybe later. But I need to get my, my career and everything set up. Right? I need to get this stuff figured out. And then he left. I never saw him again. And so in his mind, he had plenty of time to pursue God. For him, it was always tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, I'll pursue him. But that tomorrow won't be there forever. One day it'll be too late. 
Amen? It'll be too late. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to come to a close. But Peter said in verse 1, he wrote these things in order to stir up our sincere mind regarding these things. He said, I want to stir up your sincere mind regarding these things. And so following Peter's example, I want to also stir up our minds as we close. But I want you to rethink the second coming of Jesus. Okay, I want you to see the relevance of it to your life right now. But first, Jesus' second coming is not an add-on to the gospel. Because I know many of you guys, you believe in Jesus. The gospel is very important. Okay, I hear the phrase gospel-centered all the time. Well, if you're gospel-centered, the second coming of Jesus is not an add-on to the gospel. It is central to the prophecy of the gospel. Or I should say, it's a central prophecy to the gospel. And the reason why is because the second coming, without the second coming, the gospel... Jesus' salvation on our behalf is incomplete. It is not a finished gospel. But if you only have Jesus' death and resurrection but no return, then that would be kind of like praying, paying for a wedding. So you paid all the costs for the wedding. You finish all the preparation for the wedding and then you never have the wedding. That's what it would be like. To have the gospel but then ignore Jesus' second coming, that would also be kind of like planting and growing this beautiful rose in your garden. And then finally, as the rose begins to grow up out of the ground, and then as it begins to bloom this beautiful head, you just snip off the head. Okay, the whole reason why you planted the seed and you saw this grow, your faith, you just snip off the head. To have the gospel but then ignore Jesus' second return is kind of like rowing a boat, but you're only using one arm and one oar. Now, with enough focus and diligence, can you move forward? Yeah, I guess so, but it's going to be very hard. More likely, you're going to go in circles. It would be much easier to row your boat with two arms and two oars. That would be to have Jesus' death and resurrection in your mind, but also his second coming in your mind, to have the fullness of the gospel. So what am I saying? To have the gospel, his death and resurrection, but ignore his second coming is an incomplete picture. And here's why. It's because Jesus' second coming is at the center of your faith because it consummates your faith. Amen? It's a consummation of everything that Jesus began to do through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, when he was on the cross, did he say it is finished? Yes, he said it is finished. In other words, my purchase for your forgiveness is done. But the application of that, is that finished? No way. The application of that is happening right now. It's going to continue to happen throughout your life. And then it's going to ultimately happen when he returns. So he paid it all. It is finished. But applying that, that is not finished. So you need his second coming. Your salvation is not just past, brothers and sisters. You just think about it in the past. I know. I do too. Oh yeah, my salvation when I was in junior high or in high school, when I got saved. No, it's not just past. Paul makes it clear in Romans 8. His past is present. You're being saved right now. As you walk with God, you're not just going to church. You're not just growing in your faith. You're being saved from the judgment that is coming upon the world, you are escaping those flames as we speak right now. And Paul said, you're going to ultimately be saved in the future. You've been saved, you're being saved, you will one day be saved. And that future salvation is Jesus' second coming. Brothers and sisters, you cannot ignore that. That is the full picture of the gospel and your salvation. So what am I saying? It's central to your faith. But here's one final reason why it's central to your faith. It's because it validates once and for all everything that you believe to be true 
it will validate your faith physically before the world. Physically one day, everything that you believed, everything that you shared with your family members, hey, you know, this is what I believe, maybe you should believe too. And then they reject you. They reject you. Everything that you've clung to, even though people accuse you and reject you, one day that's going to be validated. I like John Piper's words. He made this important point regarding this. He said, consider a physical incarnation of the Son of God, a physical death, a physical resurrection, a physical ascension, and then poof, vanish, never to be seen on earth again. Does that make sense? So everything Jesus did was physical, right? He literally came here, born of a virgin. He was in a human body. He lived. He ate bread. He ate fish. He ministered on this earth. He died a gruesome physical death on a Roman cross. He rose bodily from the grave. Everything was physical. He went up to heaven. They saw him go up physically. He didn't just dematerialize like Star Trek. But he physically went up to heaven and then vanished. Oh, now he's spiritual. I just have him in my heart. Yes, you do. But he will again physically return. And Piper went on to say, if you deny the second coming, that is essentially denying the physical incarnation, the physical death, and the physical resurrection. You're denying all of it, basically. Because Jesus did everything physically, so where is his physical coming? Oh, I don't believe in that. Well, then you don't believe in what he did prior. And so, brothers and sisters, it is central to your faith. You need to have the whole picture. So that is something to think about. Peter is saying, I want to stimulate, I want to stir up in your thinking regarding this. And then here's one final thing that I want to stimulate your thinking on. But why is the second coming so important? It will give incredible meaning to your life that you're living right now and to human history, what you're seeing all around you in the world. It will give incredible meaning. See, most of life is not on the mountaintop. You're not living a revival perpetually, right? It's not like revival to revival. But most of life is like being a factory worker, screwing one screw into a plate over and over again, right? Most of life is like that. I got to wake up, go to work, come home, make dinner, feed the kids, go to bed, wake up, go to school, whatever you're doing, right? It's just repetitive. And in that kind of a life, you can lose meaning very quickly. And that's why so many of us, we begin to look for other things. Oh, you know, I'm going to get into golf. Suddenly, golf is really, really important to me, and I'm really into golf now. Or I'm going to get really into like being a foodie, and I'm just going to taste all the great foods. As you're a Christian, why? Why are we getting into these things? You've lost meaning. You've lost meaning. You're the factory worker, screwing that one screw in that plate over and over again. But then let's suppose you're that factory worker, and then one day, your supervisor comes and says, hey, if you'll do this for another month, I'm going to give you your pay because you've been doing a good job and you're going to get paid $10,000 at the end of this month. Suddenly, does, does that give you meaning to what you're doing? I hope so. Right? You're going to show up the next day and you're going to be like, okay, $10,000. Right? 29 days. <laughs> 25 days. It's going to give incredible meaning. And then let's suppose your supervisor comes back and says, you know what? This world war broke out. Suddenly, I'm sure you heard it on the news. And our factory was recruited by the government, by the British or American government, to make these parts so that they could put together tanks in the war effort against Nazi Germany. Now what are you going to think? My goodness, I'm going to get paid, but this is for a much, much greater cause. 
I mean, this, this is not hard to understand. Now you're doing the exact same thing every day, screwing in a screw into a plate, but now there's incredible purpose and meaning behind it. And all it was is you just changed your thinking. You became aware of things, right? And so brothers and sisters, we're gonna close with this, but if you're lacking passion or meaning in your walk with God right now, then I just wanna encourage you, study eschatology. <laughs> study the last things. Eschatology simply just means the study of the end times. And when I say that, I don't mean now you need to get into obscure calculations on the number 666, figure out what adds up to 666, or figuring out who the Antichrist is. I'm not talking about that. When I say get into eschatology, what I mean is understand the drama, the unfolding overarching story that God is bringing all around you that you are intimately a part of. Okay, begin to understand that story. Begin to understand what inning you are in this game. You know, I remember back when my son Joshua did Little League. He actually did a good job. He, he wasn't too bad. But I remember one game, he was really little. But they were playing, and then when I looked out into the field, I started shouting because the game was happening, and then him and a friend were looking for four-leaf clovers on the field. They were just hunched over looking for clovers. I'm like, what are you doing, right? The batter's up to bat. The game's important, Right? You guys are about to lose. If you lose this point, you're going to lose. Or you could win. And yet my son was just looking for four-leaf clovers. And so I want to encourage you, if you have lost meaning in your walk with God, understand what inning it is. Understand where we are in the overarching unfolding drama of God's redemptive story. It is massive. And you know, I don't usually address genders, but but I want to speak to the men in particular because men are struggling today. Not to minimize women who struggle. Women's whole history is one of struggle. So I, so I recognize that. But right now, in particular, men are struggling. There are more men unemployed, doing nothing, hooked on opioids, committing suicide. They're hopeless. So many men addicted to video games. And why is that? Well, the reason why is because they're losing meaning. Especially video games, you know, I, I just want to, okay, let me hammer this one. Because <laughs> I know, I know. But you know why men play video games more than women? Do you know why men in particular get drawn to that? It's the way God has wired men. But men, okay, God has designed men to have goals, clear goals and clear purpose in their lives. Of course, women do as well. But men in particular, they're wired that way. And they're wired to feel competent. They want to accomplish things, right? Have a clear point system, right? Grow in their avatar, right? Grow in their power, level up. Right? Men want to level up. And so men want to feel like they're heading somewhere. But then men who don't feel like that's happening, what do they do? Oh, you know what? I'm going to go into this realm where it's easier, which is video games. So I'm going to head somewhere in the virtual world. I'm going to level up in the virtual world. I'm going to feel like somebody in the virtual world. And I'm going to conquer. I'm going to be a warrior. I'm going to attack villages and conquer them. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to steal, you know, Princess Peach from Bowser, I'm gonna, whatever. I'm gonna do all these things because your actual life has lost meaning. And if that's you, brothers and sisters, you need to understand what God is doing. Okay, there is a drama unfolding all around you. Okay, you need to grab a hold of this. You need, to, you need to come alive to this. And not just the men, but women as well. All of us. Do you understand? Jesus is coming back soon. I love this, but the early church, whenever 
they saw one another, their greeting was Maranatha. Maranatha. Maybe we need to start doing that in our church. But Maranatha simply means the Lord is coming. So when the early Christians showed up for a community group and they opened the door, they would say, oh, so glad you came, Maranatha. And then they would say, yeah, Maranatha. When they showed up to church and afterwards they're fellowshipping, they say, hey, Maranatha, Maranatha. And what are they saying? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And so that defined the early church. I believe that's why the early church went on to change the world. Amen? Let's come before the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we give you all the glory and we give you all the thanks. Thank you so much, Father, for your goodness over our lives. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, yes, you are coming. Maranatha. The Lord is coming. And so, Lord God, I pray and ask that you will please help us. Like Peter said, to, to be stirred up in our minds, to understand what all of this means so that we can begin to live our lives in line with it. So please, Lord God, help us. Help us, Father. Father God, you want us to live lives of incredible meaning, incredible purpose. Are video games bad? No, they're not bad. Is playing golf a sin? It's not a sin. Lord, you have given us many things to enjoy, but Lord God, none of those things take over our lives. None of those things give us the meaning to our lives, the purpose of our lives. And neither the school or career or making money or getting married, but Father God, the ultimate purpose that drives us is Maranatha. The Lord is coming. So Lord God, I really pray for that. I pray for that today, Lord. In my life, in this church, Lord, let us be a people of Maranatha. So, Lord God, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord as we do every Sunday. But let's just pray. Like I said earlier, if you are here and you've lost meaning in your Christian life, and you know you've lost meaning when everything feels routine and old and humdrum, and sure, there can be days like that. Everyone has days like that, but I'm talking about an extended season of that. There's a dryness. There's no motivation really to read your Bible, serve at church, pursue God. Well, that's you. You've lost meaning. And you've forgotten all the things that God has repeatedly said in his word. You've forgotten. You've forgotten Maranatha. You've forgotten. And so let's just pray right now for a moment, just a minute or two, asking God, God, help me. Help me to remember again.
make these things fresh again. Let's just pray that. Thank you, Lord God.